Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. And Inyash, happy eighth birthday. I am finally old enough for the really hardcore lollipops. Right. Yeah, our podcast, I, I was talking with my wife driving back from the gym the other night because she's listening to our podcast. It's always kind of a worrying thing no, when your SO starts listening to your podcast. Not exactly. She's listening to uh, the ind- self-indulgent recent one. But it made okay. me wonder like how long we've been doing this. And I checked, and it was just like three or four days before the eighth year of eighth year anniversary of our first episode releasing. So that would have been yesterday, Saturday the 17th. If we had been elected president when this podcast started, we could no longer be president now. Wow. That's something to think about. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> no. No, not okay. really. You know, in some ways it feels like a lot longer. In some ways it doesn't feel anything like that. I've been putting the older stuff up on YouTube, I, I think I mentioned before, and it's kind of surprising like how much we have changed over the years. Yeah, I haven't listened to the old ones, but I maybe I'll go back and listen to an old one at some point just for fun. You want to just dive in? Let's do it. Today we are going to touch on two related things, and the first one is a thing that you sent me. So you want to start it? It's start with a shout out to David of the Mind Killer podcast. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. So first off, uh, sidebar, he recommended a few weeks ago as a troop deployment that uh, uh, Christopher Paulini was releasing a new book uh, in the Inheritance Cycle saga, which, the Aragon book series. It, the, for, only the first one's out. Anyway, thank you, David, for recommending that because I never would have heard about it otherwise. The last one came out at least 10 or 15 years ago. It was really fun visiting Allegasia again. And uh, anyone who enjoyed Aragon uh skim the wikipedia pages because this assumes that you have a really fresh memory of the series uh, mm. but it was great so check it out um cool. and at least a year maybe two ago he recommended a book to me by um john sarno uh the book called healing back pain i didn't read the whole book i read parts of it online on like a reader that made me click to each page rather than just like skim it um mm. so it was kind of like a nightmare, but uh, that's what I get for not buying the book. But I I got through enough of it to realize that this is kind of what I was already doing. So I'm not talking so much about John Sarnos's book. Exactly. I'm talking about a less strong post called the mind body vicious cycle model of RSI and back pain. So how was John Sarnos involved in all this? Uh, Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, First off, RSI means repetitive strain injury. It's one of those things where it's like, you know, oh, you use your wrist a lot. And now it hurts all the time. Okay. One of those vague, annoying diagnoses that just means you're in pain. And of course, back pain being one of the most popular. The author of this post, um, uh, Stephen, great name, Stephen Burns. Hmm. Uh, he even spells it correctly. Uh, <laughs> he, he calls the, the orthodox model, which is basically like, ow, you know, you hurt your arm and your brain says, ow, right? Right. Because uh, your arm just got injured. Exactly. Okay. So if we're going to run with like the example of like chronic back pain, it means that there's this constant injury and it's constantly telling your brain, ow. Um, Sarno's proposition was that there's a sneaky subconscious something, something that's, that's kind of the root behind this. So rather than it being, you know, an actual physical injury, uh, and importantly, and I think this is said in this post and maybe not as emphasized as much as it should be in my limited experience, this starts with a real injury, usually probably for most people. Uh, chronic chronic pain or RSI. Um, yeah. I'm going to just call it chronic pain. Yeah, there's something that happens initially that triggers it. Yeah. I don't know how many how often I mentioned this or how many years it's been on the podcast, but I've had chronic back pain for... Uh, Almost as long as we've been doing the podcast, I think, right? About twice as long. 13 or 14. Twice as long. 13 or 14 years, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, okay. But the thing is, is like a few years ago, I, you know, on and off with waxing and waning success, I kind of just like stopped letting it be a problem. But I'm mentioning this because 
uh, Sarno's description of part of how one can orient their themselves towards their pain really resonated with me. And that because like I, the way that I I've managed it myself was sort of like a an improperly reasoned and and not not well thought out, just sort of like implicit approach. I managed my back pain by basically pretending it wasn't there. Okay. And that had varying degrees of success. Okay. I've done that with some things. Since it wasn't done in a refined way, it was just kind of like me just deciding, like, I'm not going to let this ruin my life anymore. There was no deliberate, like, intentionality behind it. So, it, like I said, I had varying success. Sarno's model is that the pain comes from usually some sort of trauma. He, I think, talks about, like, you know, childhood trauma or current life stresses or whatever. Um, and this causes what is a well-known phenomena, involuntary vasoconstriction to the area that your body thinks is in pain. All right. What is involuntary vasoconstriction? Reduced blood flow. Okay. And so your brain says like, I'm having some, some problems with my wife, so I'm going to reduce blood flow to the part of my back that I hurt last year. Well, well, the thing is, your your sneaky subconscious says that. I mean, like, obviously, yeah, I'm not I'm not doing it on purpose. Right. What Sarno proposes is that your pain really comes from, he calls it tension uh, myositis syndrome, TMS. The, the important thing is that it's not just a physical condition, but it's deeply intertwined with psychological factors. I vaguely remember this. I do remember, like, being um, having healing back pain recommended to me a bunch, and I think I read up on it somewhat i don't remember I, I know i never actually had the book so maybe i read someone else's um reading of it but i do recall it being a thing like uh yeah sure you injured your back but that heals up and the pain keeps coming because you know you were abused as a child and for some reason your brain thinks that pain, back pain will distract you from that and so it keeps giving you back pain and i i just kind of put it down at that point because I, I was like okay th this sounds like some more psych bs that uh i do not even remotely believe and uh and i walked away at that point you're you're telling me that it had something more to it yes and unfortunately i think he did lean a considerable amount on like the repressed trauma or whatever but like the thing is is and i'm sure you've noticed this too you know on bad pain days your mood is a lot worse maybe, maybe like it's a stressful day and god damn it my back, my back fucking hurts too you know right. like it, at least that's been my experience and okay. so, you know, stress, like actual stress would lead to increased discomfort. Um, mm -hmm. So that part, I think, is is much more palatable pill to swallow than the idea that it's it's from suppressed trauma or something. So is this post like trying to rescue the suppressed trauma thing or is it arguing something different? Like, why is Sarnos involved here? I'm glad you asked because so Sarnos, that, again, his model is basically your brain distracting you from trauma, pointing at the... Uh, damage that's not really that that bad or that hard to heal, but still painful. And then your brain, you know, receiving that pain signal. The, this post is about the mind-body vicious cycle. So it's it it looks a lot like Sarnos's model, where you've got you know your brain saying, "Ah, I'm in I'm in injured. I'm I'm in pain." And then you've got the the vasoconstriction. The issue with vasoconstriction, which is a a decrease in blood flow, which leads to increased blood pressure, uh, which which actually does cause problems. Um, yeah, I'm aware, like I've done a lot of physical therapy and other work now after I had my back injury and like one of the things that keeps coming up is that like 
they want to get blood going to this area. The blood delivers nutrients. The blood helps it to, to get the stuff it needs to heal. And they're like, yeah, there's a lot of places in your body that don't really get all that much blood all that often. And so like, that's why they do massage to like knead it and get the blood moving. That's why you do the hot and then the cold to, to expand and then constrict that area. And a lot of the physical therapies, like it just seems like getting blood to there is a major consideration uh, for, for the healing. When I read that, like, yeah, there's this thing that, uh, that your body sometimes does this vasoconstriction thing where it just like tightens up all the capillaries and doesn't really let much blood get there. I'm like, I can absolutely see how that could cause actual damage and uh, make things worse for you. And this is done by the body as like a protective measure. You know, if, if you, if you really badly cut your hand, it, your, your body notices that and reduces blood flow to the area so that you don't lose all your blood out of that hole. Um, all right. Seems kind of smart. Yeah. So it, it, it's smart when it works, but right. the thing is, is that it's, it's easy enough for your brain to kind of just like, just toss that solution at everything, kind of toss that solution at everything. And it's easy to get that, that, that reaction sympathetically. Um, you can get, you can measure reduced blood flow in people, uh, by having them look at somebody bleeding or like a picture of somebody mm. bleeding. Mm-hmm. Um, or, uh, in, in the post, he lays out a couple more specific examples, but uh, what what he calls the the vicious cycle. This is the part that what. So I, I came across this post maybe not too long after it was published, called June of 2022. Maybe it was well after. Maybe I found it a year later. <laughs> I don't know when I found this, but when I read it, I was like, God, if I had, because you'd asked me, you know, after you hurt your back a few years ago, like how how do you handle it? And I had some shit answer like I pretend like it's not a problem and I don't let it ruin you know rule my life. But that's not really advice, you know. Hmm. Um, and so I felt bad, but I mean, it's kind of advice actually, kind of, I I wish that had been more, but, uh, if I feel like once I finished reading this post, I was like, man, if I had spent several hours trying to articulate my thoughts on this at some point over the last decade, I would have come up with something kind of like this. Hmm. Um, cause I think this is exactly it. So, uh, again, Sarnos's model is, is just like the two directions, you know, Hey, my brain says I've got to distract from trauma. Hey, look, my let's, you know, it's my back or my wrist or whatever hurts. And then, you know, your brain now says, ow, Steven Burns's model has the, Hey, I'm in pain. I'm injured. And then the vasoconstriction and then your brain saying, ow, and then your brain saying, ah, I'm injured and in pain. And this goes just in this vicious loop. Okay. And so every time you feel pain, it does the vasoconstriction again. And so you keep just being in constant pain because of that. Pretty much. And I think that there's a lot to this. Uh, anecdotally, I mean, like the downside is is it's hard to do, hard but not impossible to do studies on this sort of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. The hard part being that you can't injure people and see how well they recover when you give them uh, different, you know, uh, therapeutic approaches, right? It sounds like quitter talk. Yeah. Well, all those all those ethics committees that fund these things, they, they don't sign <laughs> right. off if anyone gets uncomfortable. Uh, you know, less, less we but permanently no, cripple of- anybody. But there's plenty of people who get injured just naturally. Exactly. And so a lot of those people can get pulled uh, or, you know, reached out to for random sampling for different approaches. But the the one sentence summary of, of or the, the short summary of this is that uh, the, it's arguing that the vicious, the mind-body vicious cycle is the frequent culprit for chronic pain. Okay. And a couple caveats that he emphasizes, so I want to emphasize that he has no medical expertise. He's just a rando on the internet writing a blog post. Don't trust him when it comes to important medical decision medical decisions. Mm, what a cop out! And uh, and he has a horse in this race. Um, but his horse is that basically when he was in college, like two thousand six and seven, his wrists got so screwed up just from pain, just from general use at the you know uh, at the keyboard that it was like 
impossible for him to to work through school. Like I think he managed, but it was you know writing a few sentences and then taking a break. Um, you know, couldn't hold a regular pencil. Oh damn! And then a friend of his recommended healing back pain by John Sarno, and within a few days he was totally better in every way forever. Huh? And this had been hampering his ability for a year or more. Um, and and it was you know again uh, wrist, then fingers, then foot, and it was just uh, this kind of this this awful feedback. And I see this in other people, and I've seen this in myself. But it's like you know. Because it sounds so wishy-washy and it's all anecdotal because I can only talk about what it's like in my head. But, mm-hmm. you know, when I was like in my early 20s, I had some like little spot in my lower back that when I poked it, it really hurt. And I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. And like a month later, I'm limping my way into a physical therapist's office trying to figure out, hey, what the hell's going on here? How do I fix it? And they put mm-hmm. the fear of God into me by saying, hey, look, you can't bend over because that pushes your discs out. So like, be careful unloading the dishwasher or loading the dishwasher. Be careful getting laundry out of the machine and careful putting your shoes on. And that constant stress of like, oh, man, something I'm going to do to this is going to screw me up um, mm. is uh, I think was a major contributing factor to how bad it got over the subsequent years. Okay. And, and also you didn't have like the full range of motion. So you started stressing other parts of your body. Exactly. Inordinately. Yeah. I, I, you know, they're, I think they're doing the best they had, you know, with the information they had or whatever, but I think that I got really mm-hmm. shit advice from my first physical therapists. Mm-hmm. And then again, you know, I've gone, you know, I think the latest I went for back physical therapy was in like 2017, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and even they were saying, you know, be careful with it, but they didn't say, you know, don't, you know bend over to put your shoes on and stuff. They said like ease into it, but yeah. I find that the less I think about it, the better it is. And you know, it doesn't mean I have no pain any of the time, but it's so much better. And, yeah. uh, really just the, 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 there's a couple components. Like part of it is like, and this is unrelated to the, the post, well, it's related to the post, but it's not in it that reflecting on the suffering and just how much it sucks is more suffering Mm-hmm. And that was another insight that I had a few years ago was that like, there's no sense in just railing against how much this sucks. Like, you know, I used to uh, do downhill mo- or down, whatever, downhill mountain biking and stuff, you know, the kind of yeah. stuff that would totally rattle your spine and, and all that. And even now I'm not really comfortable doing that, but I'm also older and, you know, more prone to being permanently injured. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, so like, I'd be like, oh, I can't do all these things. And uh, I don't know, just coming to peace with that and saying, you know what, that's just the meat suit you've got. Just live with it and quit, quit letting that additional suffering of reflecting on the, the suffering add to the fire. Right. Yeah. Um, and so the, uh, the approach, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I mean, I, I was, I guess I was going to ask like, so if this is the case, but vasoconstriction is involuntary, well, how do we, how do we break the cycle? How do we get the brain to stop doing the vasoconstriction so that you can actually start um, getting relief from pain and healing and break the cycle? A couple of them sound wishy-washy and hippie as all hell. So bear with me on those, but they work. Um, Okay. And uh, like, but the others are, the the main thing is pretend it's not injured. Um, Again, if you have a real injury, if your leg is broken, this won't work. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But if you've had, chronic wrist pain or chronic back pain or, you know, whatever. Um, and again, this is, I'll, I'll give the same disclaimer that, that the author gave here. I'm, I'm not a doctor either, you know, get your condition checked out. But if you've got idiopathic back pain, you know, tough shit, and that's diagnosis, pretending like you're a person that, that doesn't have that condition mm-hmm. is it. 
I think what it does is it kind of just, it, your brain is kind of tricking you into thinking your back is hurt. And then you kind of trick it back and say, no, it's not. And then it's like, oh, I guess it's not. <laughs> nice. And it it is a, it can be a remarkable transformation. Um, I will say my most, per, my, but personally, um, most surprising revelation of this kind was when I, this was during my alcoholic years and I had just drink, drunk way too much and I needed to get to work and I needed to not be drunk for this thing I was about to do. Actually, I don't remember if it was work or something else, but I, I said to myself, you know what? Okay, fine. Just pretend you're sober. If you can pretend good enough, nobody will notice and you can skate by on this just saying like, oh, I didn't get enough sleep. And the crazy thing was, as soon as I started pretending I was sober, I actually literally felt more sober. Unfortunately, that experience made me have permanently less fun drinking from then on because I, I always knew I could severely attenuate the effects just by not playing along with the alcohol. And that that was kind of a bummer. But but on the other hand, served as a good emergency like, hey, I need to be more sober for a moment thing. And the corollary, that is true. This is a popular thing of, um, I forget what they call it, but not like, a, a, I guess a contact high would be what they call it for pot. But like, mm. you know, you're at a party, you know, like we were, we, uh, we did karaoke last week. Um, mm -hmm. And I had two drinks, you know, the whole night. I was not the least bit shithouse, but, but getting more into the vibe of being drunk, just because mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, there's a lot of drinking going around uh, yeah. made, made me feel drunker. But then the second I get out, you know, outside, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm done. I can, I can be sober again. So that, yeah. that susceptibility goes the other way. Um, but anyway, there's a. Uh, so just pretending that you're not in pain has significant um, benefits. Yeah. And there's like visualization exercises you can do. And the, again, this sounds hippy dippy, but like, I don't know if you've ever tried this. Uh, like if it's really hot out and you're laying in the sun, uh, mm -hmm. you've got your eyes closed. Imagine you're somewhere really cold. At least for me, I feel like I'm, you know, a lot less hot sitting in the sun. Uh, it's it's not a perfect solution, but it helps. You can actually stimulate blood flow to areas of the body by imagining blood flow to that area. Mm. And this is right. measurable as hokey as it sounds. You can do this through imagining blood flow. You can do it through like imagining dipping it in warm water or having, you know, sunlight hitting it or whatever. You, you yeah. reframe positively what's going on rather than, again, sit there and negatively rehash like how much this sucks. I think I read in the comments to this post, somebody said they, when they were in a lot of pain, they just visualized it like as a ball of light at the base of their spine and it traveled up and out of their body. And then he just like ignored it thereafter. He was like, no, it's left my body. And at the end of the day, he was like, oh my God, this is fine. I'm fine. Everything's great. Yeah. And the thing is like, well, and what's nice is that this is a fellow rationalist on, you know, less wrong. Like th this sounds mm -hmm. like hokum bullshit and it sounds dangerously close to, to uh, witchcraft and wizardry. But hmm. this isn't saying, you know, look, draw this circle and spin, you know, three times counterclockwise. Uh, and I'm teasing the wizards. Uh, but th <laughs> this is just, you know, your, your brain and body are, are so tightly connected, you know, so it it's this actually just does work. Uh, there, there's some stuff linked to in the post. And then those links have links to like actual papers about this sort of thing. If you don't don't take my word for it, look it up. Um, yeah. But, you know, part of it, too, is is like. Uh, well, I, I mean, mindfulness meditation to help yourself become aware of the kind of thoughts you're having, you know, that I forgot to include that because this is something I, I do more or less routinely is mm -hmm. be aware of the thoughts I'm having when I'm having them. I don't do this all mm -hmm. the time. Otherwise, I can never really be in the moment. But uh, if I'm in a bad mood, I know that I'm in a bad mood. Yeah. Uh, some people don't realize it till someone else points it out. Um, yeah. But yeah, like the main thing behaviorally is 
just resume physical activity and don't let pain dictate your limits. Like I can, I can bend over and put my, I, I don't know if I can, I can't stand with my headphones connected uh, to the ground or to the computer here, but I can, I can rest my fingers to the ground. I don't know if I can reach my palms now, mm-hmm. but like there was you know, three or four years ago, I couldn't touch my shins yeah. bending over. Wow. And now I can, wow. I can touch the ground, which is the one, you know, the one thing you're never supposed to do if you've got back problems is to bend over and hurt those discs. But the thing is right. like everyone's discs are fucked. And, yeah. you know, almost it, it, the, the number of people with back pain is huge, but it's not everybody with an injury. Um, yeah. The hard part is like re, re, reprogramming your thoughts. Like, you know, because there's, like I said, there's a ton of fear about, oh, if I do this, it's going to hurt. And mm-hmm. trying to supplant that with like, hey, you know, if I, if I don't, it's just noticing that, that noticing that fear coming and saying, hey, look, if I instead don't focus on that fear. And focus on like, hey, look, I'm going to go do this thing, and I'm, mm-hmm. and it's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. It it's, again, it's it sounds so bullshit, and to push back on this if if you're inclined to, but like, it's it's like the power of positive thinking, man. Um, <laughs> but it, but it really is the power of of the kinds of thoughts that can impact your body, right? And th- this is true. I think most people can agree with this on some uh, specific dimension of their life. You know, whether it's like. Uh, anxiety related or um, motion sickness, you know, some people can, can manage that with this sort of thing. I'm trying to think of other examples that people can relate to if they haven't tried the specific stuff. I was just scanning this post and he cites at least two studies that compared the orthodox model of, you know, the you're injured, you got to do these things and heal it and or get surgery, whatever, probably not surgery, because that that actually, you know, moves things around in your body. But um, orthodox treatment compared to placebo, compared to this um, pain redirection thing, it showed that (laughs) placebo was actually more effective than orthodox model in reducing pain. And uh, the redirection, um, mental meditation kind of process was three times as successful as placebo, which was more successful than orthodox treatments so sounds pretty good if they're getting those kinds of results you know they're, they're smallish sample sizes but that is telling and, and the thing is is i think that's because with a lot of chronic injuries or chronic pain i should say there may or may not be an injury that's still there like my mm-hmm. uh and i mean i've had a dozen steroid injections you know mris etc you know the best they found was maybe some slight bulging on your l3 l4 on the left side I remember when you went in to get the MRI and you were hopeful that they would find something and there was nothing and almost nothing, right? Like the slight bulging. And they said, there's, there's really nothing we can do for that. That's not worth a surgery or anything. And you were like crushed. You're like, I was really hoping I would find something and not be in pain anymore. And and now I just have to live with this shit still. That sounds about right. I, I remember actually part of that, but I don't remember the, the emotion attached to it. So I, but I totally take your word for it. I, I remember going to the doctor because it was a different one here in Denver. And this was, I think after you hurt yours and you were going to get surgery or, or had had it. It was, yeah. It was after I had my MRI and they saw little chunks of my disc in my spine and they were like, yeah, we got to get rid of those. Yeah. And you were like, well, shit, maybe I got something. And you went for the MRI too. Well, cause I'd had MRIs before, but this, this was like a new one down here. The idea was like, okay, cool. Well, maybe they can give me surgery too and it'll fix me. And the doctor was like, yeah, I can kind of see something here, but this is not surgery. I would not recommend surgery for this. And yeah, I was boned because I was like, well, shit, I thought that'd be my, my golden ticket out. And I'm sure that for the weeks or months or years after that, I was you know probably worse off than I, I might have otherwise have been because I was told, you know, I believed, hey, I've got the solution to this problem that I think I have. And yeah. no, you can't get it because it's not bad enough, um, yeah. which thankfully, thank goodness they didn't try and give me surgery for it. Mm-hmm. You know, back surgery has a really bad recovery rate. 
Yeah. It's been four years now since my back surgery, and I'm basically completely pain-free and back to normal now. Maybe 98%, but it took four fucking years. And there was a lot of pain during that and several months where I could do almost nothing and just physical therapy, hours of it every week, you know? I didn't know you were at 98%. That's outstanding. It's it's amazing, yeah. I was pushing this uh, uh, less arm post down your throat for so long because I thought you were still at like 50%. No, no. I, well, now I have a different thing <laughs> that came up. Uh, now I have a sciatic issue because I, I think I know what triggered it. And um, I, I would like to get over that as well. Hopefully this can help. You know, again, it might be worth consulting a, a, an actual doctor to see if there's something that they can look at. Be like, oh, yeah, that's the thing. 100% sure. But so often with these things, there's no clear answer. I think that there's like resistance to people wanting to say like, yeah, it's psychosomatic. Yeah, because like, what do you do with that? Well, that's the thing. Is I, I, think, I guess now we know. Well, th- 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 yes, we have some idea of what to do. You skim the first part or the first chapter of Sarnos's book and uh, read all the testimonials and the steps on on what it takes, and then you know, kind of skip the rest about trauma and stuff, or read this yeah. short, this fifteen minute less wrong post. Yeah, I think the thing is, is like, I think you hear psychosomatic, and it's like, oh, it's all in my head, you know, and that sounds like dismissive, mm. but it's really not. Everything's all in your head. Mm. And, you know, like if I cut your foot off, your foot doesn't hurt. Your brain is telling you your foot hurts. Right. You know, like all of it's all in your head, whether or not it's actually out there in your meat suit or not. So at least for me, there was some barrier there to push through with accepting that part, which actually is part of Sarnos's approach and by extension, uh, Stephen's approach here. Just stumbled across the paragraph where they point out that um, blood also removes waste products from your tissues. So if the vasoconstriction is stopping enough blood from getting to them, waste products start to build up and they do legitimately hurt and get sometimes some more damage. Yeah, that's the thing. So I struggle with the use of like the word legitimately hurt because it hurts either way. Right. But Sorry. No, no, no. Yeah. It's not you. It's it's but it, it, it's just because that's how we think of these things. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. But but it causes a physiological problem. Mm-hmm. And uh that that on its own will cause pain. And so like kind of just by imagining it hurting long enough, you can actually make it hurt. You know, this won't be true for every part of your body and this won't solve every little thing. And like I, I know people who have uh, occasional numbness in their extremities. The second I say that and hold up my right hand, three of my fingertips went numb. Oh shit. Like it, it's just me thinking about that. It's easy enough for me because that, that one's like just, I don't know, easy enough to do. And they didn't get numb. They got tingly. With it being that easy to trigger too, like imagine how bad it is when you're told something's really going to hurt. Like, <laughs> I, I guess this is one reason why we don't tell people, yeah, this is really going to hurt or something. But one of the things, one of the places we tell people this is going to hurt more than anything else has ever hurt in your life is when they go into labor. And uh, apparently that causes the arteries going to the uterus to tense and constrict, according to this. Uh, I don't know if this is Sarno's book or, or a different book. The amount of social weight, social narrative that we give to childbirth is insanely painful uh, actually makes it more painful just on a straight physical level because you don't get the blood you need and you do start tensing up and it is more painful and even possibly bad for the child. Apparently, uh, the, the the uterus gets less um, blood too because of this and sometimes the baby comes out being birthed almost entirely white, it's saying, because the woman is so scared. Isn't that crazy? And that's actually from mm-hmm. uh, uh, a, a crazy titled book called Hypnobirthing, The Mongan Model, A Natural Approach mm-hmm. to a Safe, Easier, More Comfortable Birthing. Um, you know, it's amazing because you do sometimes hear about people who go through the birthing process and they're like, that barely hurt at all. And like, what? why? What? Why for you and not for someone else? And this could be 
I mean, anatomy may be part of it, obviously, but this could be another reason, like not going in there scared shitless and with everything tensing up because you're going to be in so much pain. Many mothers, there was a great 80,000 hours uh, episode recently, and usually it's, you know, about something about, you know, EA stuff, but it was just this two hour Mm -hmm. interview with someone who wrote a book and then blog posts, and she's like an economist professor and stuff about motherhood and Mm -hmm. uh, birth and doulas and all that stuff. Um, Her second kid, you know, they got to the hospital and 15 minutes later it was delivered. Um, wow. Like, and I think no doubt it's because your body has been through this before and kind of knows what to expect. Mm-hmm. But I think another big part of it is that your body knows that it's been through this before and that it is survivable and there's nothing that much to worry about. You'll be fine. That causes a lot less freak out. And so it, it's a powerful mechanism. And I agree with the author here that the vicious cycle seems like a good fit for these uh, dynamics that, you know, you imagine it's going to hurt and Again, it can have a real or um, psychosomatic origin. So you, it, it then it hurts, and then you're worried about it hurting, and that makes it hurt more. And then it just lather, rinse, repeat until you're miserable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I I don't have a lot to. Th- I'm glad that this wouldn't. I was going to do this as a base blast, and he said, "Hold on, this will tie into the to the episode really well." So this is kind of me stretching what I could have maybe delivered in ten minutes into a, a bit longer, but I wanted to throw on some of my own anecdotes and stuff in there. Well, I hope it came through somewhat uh, coherently. I, I realize I rambled a bit, but I, I, I can't recommend this enough to, to anybody who suffers from chronic pain, which is a surprising number of people um, mm-hmm. that if, if this doesn't totally solve your problems, it, well, at least in one study, 66% chance it can give you a zero or one out of 10 in pain. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that it can severe, se- severely, uh, well, I guess I should say substantially help if not 100% solve a lot of people's chronic pain. And uh, I mean, if you're in chronic pain, just having it go down several levels is huge because that's your entire life. You're all the time you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. For me, it was just kind of like this wake up moment of realizing like, oh, I don't have to live in constant fear of this. And then the moment I stopped doing that, I can't remember if there there was no like lightning bolt moment that I remember, but that was kind of just the insight that once, once I just don't make this my whole thing, my whole daily mental preoccupation, um, mm-hmm. then it stops being a big problem. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I liked it. I liked this post. Uh, I, I loved his summary and uh, feelings towards uh, Sarno's model. Um, well, his model is fine, but his book, again, it it leads back to, you know, I can understand things like current, you know, immediate agitation or something. Um mm-hmm. And on those days, it's always hard for me to tell which way the causal arrow was pointing. Like, am I in a bad mood because my back hurts, or am I am I does my back hurt because I'm in a bad mood today? Um, mm-hmm. But I've never been a big fan of like suppressed childhood trauma. Um, yeah, always sounds like bullshit. It, it does. However, a lot of this sounds like bullshit too. You know, so maybe there's something to that. But uh, if I have any suppressed childhood trauma, I don't. I certainly don't remember it. Um, right. I yeah. yeah. I mean, a, a vicious cycle of like, I was in pain. And so I have the the constricting, vasoconstricting reaction. And that brings more pain. And so I expect there'll be pain. And so it, that, that that vicious cycle actually makes some sort of sense, right? It does to As me. As opposed to, I don't want to think about when my dad choked me. So my brain is going to cause me to have back spasms. Yeah. It, it's weird why it would settle on back spasms instead of, you know, wrist pain or something, right? Um, yeah. And again, I didn't read Thanos' book. I'm not giving it necessarily a fair shake. Uh, mm-hmm. I read the first bit of it and was uh, that's as much as I needed. 
it's also funny because you know this other guy named Stephen also read the first part of his book and that's all he needed too. Anyway, I, I hope this can help help somebody. And at the very least, it was interesting and it rides that fun border between reason and nonsense that you know I think rationalists are are adept at navigating. Um, I agree. You know, because there's there's a lot of you know nutty sounding stuff that yeah uh, we can, we can think about carefully and get meaningful impactful uh opinions or or updated beliefs about right mm-hmm. uh, whether whether it be how, do, how did west put it on the uh, most recent mind killer podcast oh yeah if you want to know what's weird about rationalists they're, they're people who care about the heat death of the universe <laughs> 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 and and i kind of shared your thing as like wait doesn't like everybody but uh, you know what yeah. most people probably a don't know about it and of those okay. who do they're probably like you know what i'll be dead by then who cares um <sighs> You know, way before the heat of the universe, the earth is going to be subsumed by the sun. Uh, I don't think that keeps a lot of people up at night either. And frankly, for me either, like by then we'll we'll either long be dead or long be away from our sun. But, uh, you know, the, the, the heat death thing, you know, how does that, how does that, how do some people just shrug that off? Yeah, that's tomorrow. That's tomorrow's problem. Like the, the sun expanding, no big deal. We can move around. We can get away from the sun. The heat death of the universe. That's the we only got this universe, you know. Oh, and at the bottom here, I didn't actually catch this. Um, this this ties nicely in because uh, Sarnos's whole thing is you know trauma causes this or that, and uh, you wanted to talk a bit about trauma. I am eager to dive into it. All right, I want to tie this into a thing that I have been thinking about for a while, and having a hard time putting directly into words. So I'm just going to try to do it off the hip right here because it ties in. Sounds great. One of the latter things you said in your part was that it really made a huge difference to not be constantly thinking and um, worrying on and being obsessed with this, this pain issue, just dwelling on it all the time, right? Exactly. I think this is the case for a lot of things, not just physical pain. And I think that we are actually encouraged oftentimes to dwell on things rather than getting past them. And this is very bad. God, well put. I, I, I think I share your sentiment completely. I, I have no, I'm not sure where you're going with this, but I see... I'll let you continue. Sorry. But I, I think I see where you're going with this and I'm excited. Okay. Uh, well, the first little thing I'm going to start out with to, to get my foot in the door here is the it, for initial treatment for people who have have just experienced something that we would consider really traumatic, a school shooting or um, seeing a friend step on an IED or something like that. And it used to be that the thing they wanted to do was call people away and have them talk to a psychologist, some kind of trained professional to immediately process these things, work through them, like start getting themselves set up for doing the work of getting over this thing. It was found over time when they actually did studies on results that this made things much worse and ended up giving people worse PTSD than if there was no intervention at all. And actually, the best thing you can do is give people Tetris immediately after you make them play Tetris, which occupies your brain enough on something that is completely unrelated to anything that they just experience. It's just dropping blocks and trying to make patterns and shit out of the blocks that your mind is immediately taken away from that thing and doesn't dwell on it and doesn't lay down the tracks and set in the ruts of things that could be really bad. So literally the exact opposite of what they were doing before. Um, Also, always keep a Tetris game around you just in case. You know what sucks is that like there are no good Tetris games that you can just, you know, classically play for free that aren't some bloated nonsense. I skimmed uh, the App Store on the Apple App Store 
mm-hmm. a while ago, some years actually. And I see that mm-hmm. I, when I look at it now, I see that I tried two games that I guess must not have liked because they're probably full of ads or some shit. Mm-hmm. But uh, can you not just buy classic Tetris for ten bucks or something? You know what? Maybe if I do look for non, you're right. Maybe I, maybe I'm restricting by only looking at free ones. But anyway, um, yes, I agree, and I, I think that there's a huge disservice. And, and you'll probably get into this, so let me know if I'm jumping the gun. But like, mm-hmm. if somebody's given a diagnosis of PTSD, I think that that can actually have. I, I can't actually think of a good benefit to that. I mean, I can. You know, it's nice to have mm-hmm. a, a handle to put on this problem that you have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and th- in fact, that can be super helpful. I don't want to be too dismissive, but it's all too easy, I think, for people to build that into like their mental model of who they are. That is unhelpful, and there's no way around it. Yeah. You know, oh, I'm a person who had a, who had a lot of trauma in the, in the picture of me that lives in my head that that makes the short list. Um, yeah. Then then that's your vicious mind body cycling yourself except you're just vicious mind mind cycling yourself. Yeah. One of the things that people still seem to argue about is whether in the past PTSD existed at all. And there's some arguments to the like, oh, maybe, you know, it did. They just called it a different thing and treated it a different way. But more than a few people uh, in the in the historical and psychological domain are saying, you know, it just it appears it just did not exist, Uh, not to an appreciable degree at any rate. It, It wasn't something that regularly everyone came down with when they went to war. And then there's the arguments that, well, modern war is very different. You're being shot at from a distance. There's loud bangs and whatever. But also, like, in the past, sometimes you had arrows come out of nowhere, and the combat itself was just vicious. Yeah, like, the, the clash someone... of steel on steel and, yeah. you know, seeing seeing somebody's face trying to kill you. Mm-hmm. That, that sounds at least as scary as being shot at. That's that I've never had either, thankfully. Right, uh, yeah. Although, I did have somebody cock and point a gun in my face once. It was the kind of thing that when I was thinking about it the next day, because this happened in the middle of the night, I was like, you know, that seems like the kind of thing people get traumatized about, but I feel fine. I guess I'm going to just roll with that. Um, yeah. And I never think just about it. And I haven't thought about it for years. Uh, right. You know, maybe maybe that's the secret source of, of all my back pain. Yeah. It, it's the kind of thing that if I had done, if, if I'd been in a different circumstance, maybe, and gone to therapy the next day with a psychologist who was, or a therapist who was inclined to like really dig into it and dive into how I feel. Then I'd have, you know, sat there and thought about it for an hour and talked, you know, thought about, oh my God, I, you know, I almost died or something, yada, yada. And that could have, mm-hmm. that could have fucked me up more than just what happened. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's people in the past who were in vicious wars where there's, they're grappling with humans who's trying to shove a piece of steel into your body and they don't come out with PTSD. But nowadays some people will be like that person came too close to me while we were on the dance floor and now I'm shaking and I have to process this for months on end. This is not a a sane reaction and is only explainable by this sort of dwelling, cycling, obsessive, constant, vicious feedback loop that is similar to uh, what is happening with the back pain, so in my opinion. I have to ask, like, did is that is that a real thing that, that you know somebody had that happen? I've met a lot of people who are really into having trauma. I don't hang out with them anymore, but it was a thing for a while. I definitely remember that being a thing during my brief time on, you know, Twitter. And there was a time in my early years on Reddit where I'd, you know, be on some of the Reddits that just make fun of other people or whatever. Like one was like Tumblr in action or something. You know, the whole thing like, oh, I'm literally shaking right now because I saw whatever <laughs> the ad for House of Cards and Kevin Spacey's a bad guy or something, right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, I... I always think it's bullshit, but there's some people who actually will literally start shaking 
over the stupidest little stuff. Part of me wants to say that like, hey, you know, that's just them looking for attention. But then I'm, I'm thinking, hey, you know what? There's also some there's also some plenty of people whose back hurts for 10 years over fucking nothing. So I don't right. want to say that they're not experiencing real distress, even though yeah. I, that's that's my first inclination. The problem isn't that the distress isn't real. The problem is that the distress is self-inflicted and doesn't need to be there. And by self-inflicted, I don't necessarily mean just self-inflicted. I mean that it is often encouraged. Yeah, there's a whole culture of it. Yeah, I kind of feel bad saying this because I know you went for a psych degree. Oh, it's all hogwash. Don't worry. I completely forgot that I had one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. When I was in my 20s, I firmly believed and was told by many, both my peers and people I respected, that everyone needs therapy. It's just a fact of life. All humans are kind of fucked up. Some of them are really fucked up, but every single person really needs therapy because we just come out of the oven with severe issues that we have to somehow process and get over. Hmm. And I believed it. And I thought, you know, that honestly, it should be a government program. We fund therapy for everyone so that we can actually maybe finally become better humans and get over our issues and start start not being awful and backwards once we've processed our traumas. And now I not only do I think the exact opposite, I kind of feel like that pushing of therapy is victimizing to everyone who had it pushed on them. A lot of psychologists just hurt people because the whole point is to bring up these terrible things and process on them and dwell on them and go over them over and over. Maybe even things that people put behind them long ago. No, you got to dig that up. You got to confront it now. And like literally just going up to someone and kind of stabbing them in the back a whole lot, right where they had their back injury and uh, saying that it's good for them. Every week, we'll just stab you there again. And uh, eventually, eventually it'll get all the bad out of your spine and then you'll be okay, you know? Yeah. I mean... So quick clarification, I I took one degree on what's called abnormal psychology, which is the kind of thing you do if you're looking into psychotherapy and mostly like cognitive psych stuff. But I, I can see a steel man for like, you know, at some point during someone's whatever, kindergarten through maybe somewhere between seven and 13, maybe every one of those people should talk with a the therapist at least once to see if there's shit going on. Okay. That, that's a, that's a, a system I could totally get behind. And then, you know, uh, if there is stuff, dig into it. But just, you know, kind of like a, a check-in. But I also think dig into it should mean the exact opposite of what they actually do. It should be methods of how to get over it and put it behind you and never have to fuck with it again, as opposed to fucking with it every week for an hour. Hmm. I mean, it depends on the thing. Like, if it's a, if it's a current problem, you know, that that needs addressing, then that's different than, like, again. Oh, right. Like, if it's if you're actually being abused in the home or something. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so things like that. But I view psychotherapy kind of like how I view physical therapy mm-hmm. in that not everybody needs it, but it seems likely that everybody has something that they could benefit from. You know, some you're doing something wrong, probably. You're holding the steering wheel wrong and it's, you know, putting strain on your shoulders. You're slouching wrong or, you know, at, the, at, the, at your desk. Like, Sure, but I don't think physical therapy can hurt you. Well, that's not true. If you do it wrong, physical therapy can actually hurt you. But- in general, it's not going to, whereas I think a lot of psychotherapy can be actively harmful, and many people would be better off not going. No, I think that's legit. It's one of those uh, fields that, you know, everything is, um, you know, squishy science in that area, right? Like, yeah. it's really hard to say, does this help or hurt? Because 
everybody's a special snowflake and every case is different <laughs> and every and every therapist is different. Sometimes talking about it really helps. Uh, certainly, like if you're already dwelling on it a lot, you know, then talking through it probably might help, right? Maybe. I think a certain type of talking about it might help, but it's been my experience that the people who are most miserable talk about their misery constantly and oftentimes their lives aren't really that much worse than anybody else's but they just keep hyping up how bad everything is and dwell on it and it fucking brings me down to be around them but it brings them down too it's the vicious cycle again except now it's a vicious cycle of mood and and victimization rather than of of body pain yeah that's a good point i mean i think it it totally can twist that way. I, I, have no, I have nothing really to add there uh, other than, you know, I think you're definitely onto something. When Stephen Burns said that he has a horse in this race because he had a lot of back pain and this helped him nearly instantly and nearly completely, um, I, I kind of have two horses in this race in that um, I had depression for a long time and just kind of by myself, I figured out that the best way to live with it was to be relentlessly optimistic and whenever i was feeling sad go do happy things and whenever sad music came on the radio instantly change it away it was hard fucking work to force myself to have happy stimuli when i was depressed but it was what i needed to do and it worked and it's frustratingly effective isn't it yes like it it kind of sucks because everyone you know there's like the cliche of like oh you're depressed have you tried going for a walk which is like the most infuriating thing to hear when you're depressed but there's definitely a propensity to encourage yourself to keep being depressed. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I should speak. I should speak in the in the first person. When I'm in depressive episodes, and it's less now because I'm I'm I don't know. I guess I'm in a better place and whatever. But I, I still, if I if I'm doing this, I'm actually aware that I'm doing it. What I do it mm-hmm. is that I'm in a bad mood or or I'm bummed, and I will lean into it. Right. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's what you know. It's not bad to go. To, it's not always bad to go to a bad place, but. You know, if you're, if you, if you live in a bad place, you know, you don't want to stay there, then, you know, notice that you're doing that and try to try to not do that. Right. Yeah. So like you said, like positive music, brighter lights, better, better company. Whenever I find myself wanting to listen to Nirvana, I know it's time to start listening to Weird Al. (laughs) Because Weird Al is a fucking godsend for depressed people. Yeah. I can't think of a single bummer Weird Al song. I mean, he's got, he's got some, he's got a lot in fact, but they're not, they're not like bummer. They're always kind of like funny still tongue-in-cheek like like since you've been gone right it's all about how he got dumped but it's just like funny because of how extreme he says you know all his pain is and the things that it would be that he would rather do than be away from her since you've been gone i couldn't feel any worse if you the general point being is that just like you don't want to lean into obsessing about physical malady um, which also I should, this, you know, if you do have a broken leg and it hurts a lot, this, this, the, the, the techniques outlined in that post and in, uh, the first chapter of Sarno's book would probably help the recovery suck less. I've been depressed for good reasons and for no reason. Um, yeah. you know, so the, the techniques of how to, how to deal with it probably vary from case to case, but in general, I don't feel better after I spend an afternoon doing nothing but thinking about how miserable stuff is and try and just finding more things to be miserable about. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I said I have two horses in this race. And the other one, I am AG, I have, I'm autogenophiliac, right? 
there's there's such a temptation to dwell on it because you're like, I will never be a beautiful woman. I will never be in a, a sexual relationship with another beautiful woman who wants me as a beautiful woman. It's just, and then you see like, there's all this lesbian porn out there. There's amazing movies like Bound and you're like, I want that life. And you, it's so easy to dwell on it and to be like, I'm so miserable. I can never have that. Why did this happen to me, etc. But like, you don't have to do any of that. And I found like, if you just don't dwell on it, it isn't nearly as bad. Like the dwelling is the thing that really hurts. I worry because like, if I had been a teenager when hormones were readily available, I may have jumped on them as well because I would have thought this was a thing that could fix me. And even if I hadn't, I would have always, every single day, been thinking, should I? Maybe I should. Maybe this will help me. Maybe I can have the fantasy. But no, no, I shouldn't. And just being torn like that would be very damaging to my psyche, I think. And instead, it was just like, no, you know, I I can't. This is the body I got. I guess I can keep dwelling on it forever. I can just fucking get on with life and try to try to be attractive in other ways. And it worked, basically. <laughs> and every now and then, I still have to remind myself not to do any dwelling. But... I can't imagine what it would have been like to be in an environment where it was cheered on and that everybody said, yes, this is exactly what you should be dwelling on. And it's extremely unfair that uh, that you don't have exactly what you want. Yeah. I mean, I I think the trying to figure out how to navigate this next sentence, um, mm. I think the jury is still out on some aspects of childhood treatment for that sort of problem, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's uncontroversial. The uncontroversial statement is that there are still people arguing about it. There, that's completely non-controversial because <laughs> that's just a fact. Um, okay, but like, like I mentioned, um, you know, with with back problems, it's like you know I can't you know ride a BMX bike down a mountain anymore or whatever. You know, I, I I'm five eight. You know, I'm I'm never going to look like any of the Chris's from the Marvel movies. Uh, right. But and you, so, like, you don't have to dwell on that. It doesn't it, have to ruin your life. Right. This is maybe the next thing I should try to actually put in the effort on instead of just waiting to find someone else who are a less wrong post about it. But like there's a way to just accept what you've got without without it being the least bit defeatist. And yeah. also without like whatever, capitulating to the circumstance in a way that says, Well, I also can't improve where I'm at. Like you can actually right. be content and happy and say, I want I want this to be better. You know, it it's somewhere between zen and dude and stoicism <laughs> mm-hmm. uh it's just this isn't the life that i got you know this isn't mm-hmm. this isn't the body i've got so let me look at what i've got and hey you know what it's pretty good um yeah. you know i think that's by far the greatest asset of stoicism that it teaches people not to dwell on shit and get over it and just keep living their lives yeah anyway where are we going with this um you, you said another link which was nice that it uh, the second that I read the title, because, well, I read the link when I was like, oh, an SSC book review. I'm going to be at this all night. However, I've already read this one. Yes, because 60 episodes ago, we did an episode on it. That's why it sounded familiar. <laughs> <laughs> we did an episode on Crazy Like Us, the book review of Crazy Like Us uh, that um, Scott Alexander posted, where he points out that things like um, anorexia seem to be contagious and the before a culture is introduced to them doesn't really happen very much like tiny fraction always there's some incident rate but then it becomes popular and suddenly everybody has anorexia and by everybody i mean you know obviously not everybody but a lot of people all of a sudden seem to have it he he mentioned several different cases of of um social maladies that follow this this pattern 
And it is, in retrospect, kind of obviously the sort of thing where you find out a thing and then you start identifying with it. And especially when your peers are identifying with it and you and there's a social contagion element to it as well. So yeah, he talks about uh, about anorexia in Hong Kong, depression in Japan, PTSD in Sri Lanka, schizophrenia in Zanzibar. That one sounds interesting. I don't remember that section. The interesting part behind all that is that the dwelling doesn't have to be just yourself. Like obviously when you yourself are dwelling on things, that is very bad. That's, that's the trigger. But society can dwell for you. <laughs> and this is a good reason not to watch too much news, not to be on Twitter all the time, not to be watching Fox News or, you know, we have to fill 24 hours with the most outrageous clickbait we can have thing. They are doing all the dwelling for you and literally are causing this sort of trauma. The the It is a vicious cycle that is being perpetu- perpetuated by the rest of society on you. And I think this is one of the reason, good reasons to watch out and not spend a lot of time around people who are constantly chronically miserable and constantly complaining about how bad various things are, whether it be the Nazis that are going to be taking over or the uh, commies that are trying to be taking over. It's just not actually that bad in almost every real life case. Obviously, there's some places where it is an issue, but the way people ruin their lives with it is greatly out of proportion. It's a lot like the back injury where at this point, there's not much left there to actually be causing damage. And yet you're in constant pain anyway, because you just keep sending the the pain messages over and over and over and reinforcing it and spiraling. Yeah, this is, it's quite the pickle because like, you know, there is stuff that I'm trying to think of like a good, I don't know, easy, agreed upon non-controversial example. That's, that's part of why I liked this book reviews, you know, like it just looks at data of, again, when did anorexia come online in Hong Kong? Mm-hmm. And it turns out about the 1990s, uh, mm-hmm. and it, you know, so things like that. Where, uh, or you know, there's also a, a phenomena where when famous people killed themselves, uh, mm-hmm. you, you will often, I think, sometimes see a spike in suicides among the general public. We're the most social animals on the planet, you know. Like, there's, I don't know if someone who loves ants is going to disagree with me, but social contagion is a real thing uh, mm-hmm. for good and bad things. There's all kinds of positive things that we we do in our lives that spread to other people. And that's, that's outstanding. Uh, yeah. And a lot of this stuff is, you know, hardwired into us. The most recent uh, clear thinking podcast was a discussion with a uh, evolutionary psychiatrist, which is a field I didn't know existed. And it was a lot of fun talking about like the, the roots of things like anxiety and, you know, how maybe they're useful and maybe they're not. Uh, I just finished that episode. It was so good. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Was, was it clear thinking or was it 80,000? Oh, it was 80,000 hours. Excuse me. Um, You're right. It was 80,000 hours. Yeah. And uh, I was going to say, because I remember it being like three hours long. Uh, but uh, <laughs> True to its name. Every episode is about 80,000 hours. That's what it feels like. Um, <laughs> but, the, you know, there's like a fun anecdote of, you know, he had a, a patient who wanted a, um, anti-anxiety medication. And mm-hmm. the guy was like a daredevil stuntman, whatever, competition guy for a living. And like, wasn't it ten percent of the people in his profession die? Yeah, on the job. Yeah. And and he's like, yeah, man, I just I I get so so nervous that I can't I can't drink water and keep it down and stuff before before these races. And the doctor was like, I can't in good conscience prescribe you a way to do this easier. There's <laughs> right. some level of anxiety that is actually perfectly sensible, and you aren't uh, listening to the the honed instincts that we have in us that say don't you know, put yourself in, in bottle in the way of, of, uh, permanent injury or death. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> so, you know, there, there's there's a base rate to these things being useful. We can make up a just those story for PTSD. I mean, well, I mean, the, the just the just those story actually just tells itself. Like, I knew a guy uh, that worked at the gas station when I delivered pizzas through college, and he had fought in Iraq or Afghanistan. And uh, I remember we were talking about whatever the weather. It was raining, and he's like, "Yeah." I'm off work, but I'm waiting to go home till it stops. And I'm like, well, why is that? He's like, I can't drive in the rain. The splashes when cars hit like puddles just reminds me of IEDs in a way that I, that paralyzes me when I'm behind the wheel. Um, mm. You know, that sounds like the kind of thing that he should find a way to work through, but I certainly wasn't going to tell him like, you know, that's ridiculous. It's obviously different. Right. Uh, right. I didn't, I didn't even have that inclination. If my memory serves, I just felt bad for him. Like the involuntary vascular constriction thing. It's not that it isn't happening. It is. It's just, you know... It's misfiring. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. I don't know if this was a recent-ish tweet or if I just saw it somewhat somewhat recent-ishly. I must have seen it on the Discord, but it was um, a tweet from Elias Yudkowsky that uh, he had said, try this. instead." And I, I think it's important to say try this because it doesn't work in every case. But instead of saying, I was traumatized by X, try saying, X happened. Now I falsely believe Y. Yeah. And that is surprisingly helpful for me um and mm-hmm. it, again it depends on the case but you know like i think i mentioned this a few years ago when it happened we had a, a cat that we loved dearly we love our cat more than you love your par- more than you love your children and uh she died tragically and it was kind of i blame myself uh so i have some trauma about that and our current cat is being a little butt and she's been constipated having constipation issues for like two months we're doing vet stuff we're doing everything that we're supposed to it's great but for a while i was like super panicked about it and then I remember trying to phrase it this way. And I was like, okay, instead of saying I'm traumatized by cat illness stuff, uh, let, me, let, me, let me frame it the other way. This terrible thing happened with our last cat. Now I falsely believe that every cat problem is a life-threatening medical emergency. All right. And when I phrased it that way, I was like, oh, yeah, this is obviously not the same thing. Yeah. You know, th- this is, you know, again, we're not ignoring it. We're doing, we're doing everything. But it's like this is not something that I need to be wringing my hands and ripping my hair out about. Y- again, a light case and an easy target but i do think that that is a useful reframing for a lot of uh it seems it just seems more actionable right you know because again if i said you were traumatized by this you're like great thanks doc like the gas station guy with the ieds and stuff like um iud's not ieds uh um no no it's ieds improvised explosive devices iud's are interuterine devices right i i got it backwards the first time or the second time okay Okay, yeah um (laughs) so yes he's he's uh he has the ied association and uh there's probably some exposure therapy some some way to get over that right Mm -hmm. um that's probably worth doing with a professional uh -hmm. so again i'm not i'm not going to minimize you know every case of trauma and saying that well if you just reframe it it immediately disappears because that's that's obviously bullshit right there's a process yeah there, there's a process and uh every case will be you know different different speed and and all that but like if his doctor just said yeah you're 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 traumatized you shouldn't drive at night that's a bullshit answer mm-hmm. it might not be helpful to say look we're gonna get in my car we're gonna go find some puddles and we're gonna go you know run them over M- maybe you ease into that but that sounds like the if i was you know, and I'm not a doctor. If I, but it, if I was, I wanted my license taken away. That sounds like the kind of thing I would do with my patient, right? Uh, do you think that we should string up all the psychologists and, uh, or, <laughs> or at the very least, take away their licenses to practice so they can't keep hurting more people? No. Why not? I, I think on that they provided a positive 
what I think they provide a net good. I think I think there are, are problems with some of them in some areas, definitely, undoubtedly. But I don't know where I would be without the therapy I've had in the last few years. But maybe in a similar place. The thing is, we don't even talk. We t- we talked about the stuff I was you know stressed about as much as I wanted to. You know, okay. she wasn't pushing the subject you know any more than I you know wanted to talk about it. So maybe, maybe she, she's a good therapist. I think. Okay. But I don't know. Yeah, there's definitely cracks and cranks too, right? You know, mm-hmm. there there's licensed psychologists saying you have childhood suppressed memories of your parents who played D and D and then they, they did a devil cult <laughs> thing and you know, you were a sacrifice rape baby or something. Right. Yeah. Like that, that stuff was actually also said by, by people with real degrees and, and licensure. Um, so no, I will, I won't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but uh, I, I would say that it, it's important to take a close look at that sort of thing. Why would, do you think that they provide a net negative? <sighs> From what I hear, cognitive behavioral therapy is actually really good, um, and the internal family systems is really good, but I don't know how much of the various um, psychological therapies out there are things that help as opposed to how much are things that just hurt people more and traumatize them more and make them keep coming back for more pain every week. So I I would need some numbers to, to figure out how much of it is net harm versus net good. Some psychologists are like good physical therapists where they they want to see you as few times as it takes for you to get out there and crush it, right? Yeah. And some of them are like bad chiropractors who say you need to come in for an adjustment every week for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I, I can keep your symptoms at bay with my with my whack and crack techniques, but <laughs> you know you're it's gonna, you're gonna have to come in at least once a week forever. You know if you don't want to be in, in in pain again. Yeah, and the worst ones will actually injure you. Right, exactly. That's that's a really good point and a great way to extend the metaphor. Not just on chiropractic, too bad, but the the bad ones, which make up some double digit percentage of them, you know, full on buy into the the magic woo of it. And uh, there's you know associations with higher incidences of strokes after uh, having your neck manipulated by a chiropractor and stuff like that. Right. Uh, the thing is, I think that most people, by most I mean definitely more than half, would be helped far more just by being given a basic resilience pep talk like you're not actually in pain walk it off chill out don't stress about it keep living your life as if you weren't in pain pretend that you're not it'll get better and very much the same kind of thing for psychological stuff you know you you were not really victimized you're not in in pain even if you were victimized a bit like okay shit happens you know you get over it you move on with life you don't let this rule you you don't let's become who you are i think that's a better reframing because some people actually were you know shysted by yeah. something yeah 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 and i mean there's there's some things where i'd be like okay now that this thing happened i am not resting until i have murdered someone in revenge because they, there are some things that i will not get over but um if i'm not willing to actually murder someone for vengeance um i think it's much better to let things go and and not dwell on them and get on with your life and there's so many people out there who say the exact opposite and I think that's that's just terrible and wrong. And the correct message is sometimes life sucks. Sometimes shitty things happen. We always get over it. We are stronger than that. And we're going to keep living our lives because we have important things we got to get done. That, that resonates. You know, uh, there's that Buddhist quote, um, you know, holding on to anger is like holding a, a burning coal with the intention of throwing it at somebody. Mm. You know, it's like, who's going to get hurt worse by this? And it's not just anger, it's any sort of pain. It's holding on to grief, holding on to being wronged, you know? Yeah, I, I think that 
I, I guess I used the anger example because you mentioned vengeance, you know, it, yeah. but it's funny. Did you, did you do the mandatory, you know, play sports in school? Like, uh, people didn't, there was a mandatory gym class, but I managed to mostly not do any sports stuff. Nice. Well done. I did a sport every year because my parents didn't want us home all the time. And uh, ah. I think it was, I think it was probably good on net for us, but you, you use the phrase, walk it off. And I, I'm sure I was told that dozens of times. After being, you know, hit with a baseball or, you know, hit in the face with a soccer ball or something. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And that advice worked every time. Yeah. And, and, and it, on the one hand, it's a dismissive, annoying coach being like, look, suck it up, get in there, kid. And I get it. Kids suck at sports and we're, we're not that fun to watch and it's got to be a shit job. But on the other hand, like most of the time it's like, yep, it hurts, but see if you can walk through it. Oh, good. You're good. All right. Nailed it. And it's like, oh, good. Yeah. I thought I was hurt. I'm not. Huzzah. But <laughs> if they if they picked me up and carted me off and taken me to the hospital, yeah, then I've got this whole thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe the first step should try to be just telling people, hey, look, walk it off. And yeah. if that doesn't work, I mean, it's hard to see how this would work in real life for like actual people with, with real trauma, right? But in my analogy, that's getting more and more stretched with uh, childhood sports injuries. It's sure working great so far. I mean, I, I've known people who were sexually abused as children who said that the later response when their friends found out was worse than the actual abuse was, that they got over the abuse okay, and then the, the response afterwards when people found out and started treating them in, in a very different way was a lot more damaging, which is kind of crazy. And the, the exact opposite of what anyone would want. You know, you tell your friends thinking, I don't know, you know, why ever it came up, and then suddenly it's like now a worse thing that happened to you than it was when it happened. I'm reminded I listened. I have no idea where this is from. It was, but it's some podcast because I'm hearing a voice in my memory, but it was some woman who would have been in her like, you know, fifties or sixties. Cause she's talking about, you know, when she was a kid or something and, you know, had whatever, a, a failed sexual encounter of some sort. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when she was a, when she was a teenager, she wrote it off as like, well, that, that sucked or that was dumb or whatever. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And then later was like a professor or a teacher or somewhere around a bunch of college kids. And they were trying to convince her that, no, you were, you were assaulted and you're, you're now traumatized. And she's like, no, I'm pretty sure I'm good. Um, mm-hmm. I'm probably forgetting most of the details of this, but this is the, the phenomena that you're talking about of, yeah. you know, trying to reframe again, what could, what you could just brush off uh, as uh, you know, make this a big, a big deal for yourself. You know that famous picture of uh, the um, Victory Day where uh, the the sailor is like bending over a woman in the streets and kissing her. I just when learned it's been announced this. that we won. Yeah, yeah, that they did not know each other. He just like the news was announced and the entire street erupted. And he turned around and grabbed the first pretty girl and just like kissed her deeply and then went off to you know to like cheer some more as a part of like his celebration thing. And she like they they interviewed her and she was like, yeah, I mean it's a thing that happened. It, it, it's not really a big deal. And, and, you know, nowadays people, they, they were literally shocked. They were like, what do you mean? It wasn't a big deal. You were sexually assaulted. And she was like, yeah, I don't know, man. A, a Navy dude kissed me. Cause he was really excited about a war being over. Like, it's not like I was being raped or something. You know, I had some guy in, and I, I have no idea, you know, he was not the coach. He was a student, maybe a year or two older than me as, as we're leaving the locker room or coming back in or something from gym class or one of the sports things. Like doing the butt slapping thing like they do in the movies. Mm, yeah. And I felt like it was a bit deeper than you remember. There's that uh, Key and Peele sketch like this. Mm, no. Oh, my God. It's hilarious. Um, okay. Anyone who's, who wants to laugh about this Key and Peele uh, butt slapping. 
um, on YouTube. But uh, I felt like it was a bit, there was a bit more uh, effort put into it than necessary. Okay. I'm only remembering this because you're talking about this, this thing right now, but it's like, if I, if I talked about this and it had been 10 years later or five years later, or however long I could imagine mm-hmm. it being like a whole thing. But as it was, I was like, man, that was kind of inappropriate of that dude, but whatever, I got my next thing to do. Um, right. Yeah. Like I'm not saying that people should go around grabbing strangers and kissing them because that's obviously shitty and not okay to do. But if it happens to you, you can make it be like this horrible scarring thing that ruins your life. Or you can be like, well, that was shitty. And continue on and you know maybe if you get a chance slap the dude or avoid him if you see him again in the future but like it doesn't have to become trauma you don't have to process it i wonder so we've been talking about like and i've been imagining at least exclusively um like quick incidences other than the guy who was at war but i like maybe that's worth kind of diving into because like a single instance of you know something either like inappropriate or super bad happening versus Mm -hmm a prolonged, you know, exposure to that for months or, or years. Right. Um, I could see those being totally different ways to handle. Like, again, I had one guy point a gun at me for what I'm assuming is like 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, if this happened to me a lot, uh, right. I could imagine being uh, more impacted by it. You, you would be changed as a person if you lived in a place where you knew that the guns were being pointed at you a lot. Exactly. And so yeah. I, I wonder, cause so like a, a lot of people have traumatic associations with years of their life. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if, if being told to walk it off would work for that case. I don't think it would. No. Yeah. So I, this is another good reason not to fire all the psychologists. Um, th- there's gotta be something. <laughs> all right, fair enough. Well, cause it's not clear to me what the solution for that is. I mean, cause that actually, that, that, that is more like, I was going to say a broken leg, but that happens, that happens quickly. It, it's more like, you know, you, you ruined your knee joint, you know, via years of abuse and now right, you need right. surgery and then physical therapy. Um, yeah. Like this is going to be a process, but it's solvable. Yeah, I, I'm I'm far more pushing back against the idea that first of all that everybody needs therapy as a default. That I really hate that because uh, it just makes everybody victims. It like it's an original sin thing. Everybody just has it. I, I really despise that. And also the idea that um, people need to the whole societal reinforcement of a traumatic thing happened to you. And uh, this is a big deal. I um, I think just makes things worse generally for those small one-off things because it turns them into big deals when they shouldn't be. You know, it's a big deal when it happens continuously over years. It's it's not a big deal if it happened one time. Usually, again, depending on the actual thing. Yeah, if the guy actually shot me, it would have been a big deal. Um, right. <laughs> so maybe you're just trying not to plagiarize yourself, but you had a troop deployment of this uh, of this flavor on a recent Mind Killer episode. You talked about trauma junkies. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This, this sounds uh, not only, this sounds more than tangentially related. There are certain people out there who are so deep in this cycle that they seek out trauma and often will find things to be traumatic that any reasonable person knows is not actually traumatic. And I don't know if they're actually traumatized or not. In that particular troop deployment, my point was um, it doesn't matter they whether they actually are legitimately traumatized or not the point is this is not something that should be traumatic and they are hurting and victimizing everybody who's around them so a community should not tolerate people like that maybe you can tell them hey this is trauma junkie type behavior you're putting the rest of us at risk you need to knock it off and then if they don't you kick them out like it doesn't have to be a one strike policy but generally if you tolerate a trauma junkie in your community they're going to uh, victimize somebody 
they're going to make somebody the person who has traumatized them by, I don't know, making them scared of being raped or, and now that person is the rapist in the community or, or whatever the situation may be. That's, that's not okay. That's what you meant when you said that they put everyone else at risk. I thought you meant like at risk of what, having their vibe harshed. Um, no, no, at, at risk of, of negative consequences by, yeah. by being, yeah. Someone who's, who's seeking out, uh, you know, the next trauma button. It's funny. Yeah. I looked up, um, when you mentioned today's subject, uh, I looked up to see if trauma and drama were related etym- etymologically mm-hmm. and they're not, they just rhyme. Um, <laughs> drama was the play and acting and stuff like that. And whereas trauma is what it means now. But, you know, I, I've met people who, you know, I'll, I'll not see them for six months and they'll be like, oh, do you want to hear about my, like the latest drama with me? Mm. And it's like, no, I don't. I I mean, you know, we're friends, you know, I want you to be, you know, happy and whatnot, but like, that's not how you start a conversation. You know, you're basically saying, hey, do you want to have a shit time? And yeah. like, how about you say, because to them, that sounds like, to me, that sounds like at least drama junkie behavior. Like, because even framing it that way, rather than yeah. you want to hear what's new with me or yeah. what's been going on lately. No, it's like, do you want to hear my latest drama? Uh, well, a lot of times it was reinforced socially. It, it Again, the whole vicious cycle of this bad thing happened and um, it gets reinforced over and over and even rewarded is terrible and, and should be broken. Yeah. I think I went a bit further afield <laughs> than I initially meant to because... Now we're talking about about rewarding these things rather than just the process of of reliving the trauma over and over, making it worse. Uh, much like reliving the pain over and over makes the pain worse. Right. No, but I, I think it it is important context though because one reason someone might do that is because of the socially reinforcing behavior. Yeah. It's, yeah. I remember being disconcerted when I got a, a thing in the mail, and I would have been in my again early mid twenties about like you know some chronic. Th- pain therapy group or something and i'm like i didn't mm. sign up for who t- what doctor dropped my name and address in some bucket to, that i guess i was i was more concerned about how anyone knew this was a thing you know i certainly mm. wasn't whatever clicking subscribe on websites or something but i could imagine an alternate future an alternate past where like i had instead of well i i, I my past was long and stupid with it again i had a, lots of ups and downs but you know if if i had made you know, I'm a person with chronic pain, a big part of my identity, I'd have been much yeah. more resistant to, to fixing it. Yeah. Because it's like, no, this is part of who I am. Um, mm-hmm. And that sounds like it doesn't help anybody. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are some people whose pain is not fixable and they, you know, a support group actually sounds great. But mm-hmm. um, it, so I think the analogy works really well. I'm glad you paired these subjects. I think they work really well together that, you know, in, in some cases it, it sounds like it would just be totally counterproductive yeah and that's yeah. uh that's everything i had about it I- you know i i'm trying to think of like the thesis of, the, of that argument I, just just for my own make sure i'm processing it correctly that there's a propensity to reinforce i don't know someone's not declaration of of being traumatized there's there's a there's a propensity to try and make people be traumatized by things they should be tra- that shouldn't be traumatized about uh maybe in as part some of it. cultures there are yeah what does this mean if we don't use the word traumatized? Cause I feel like it's, it's being thrown around a lot. Like the, the, there's this propensity for people to be like, Hey, you know, that thing that happened, there should be a huge consuming thing for you for a long time. Yeah. And that doesn't sound like it would help anybody. Certainly right. not if anyone's saying it should be a thing. If it already is a thing, that's different. Yeah. 
but the reinforcing behavior yeah and if it already is a thing that what you wanted to do is to not be that thing to not consume your entire life yeah i agree similarly to how you if you already have some back pain you want it to not be a thing that you are always focused on and a thing that is consuming you 100 like percent be less yeah well i that's interesting i i uh trying to think of a graceful um exit here but why don't i just make it like not graceful and uh you know what? It, there's there's always a uh, a smooth sliding segue to uh, our partners at the Guild of the Rose. They're gonna love that one. <laughs> that was, wow! That, oh man, it's a darn good thing they don't pay us for good segues. <laughs> Those cost extra. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> so, I, as far as I know, they don't have a, a the Guild of the Rose is an organization that that teaches rationality techniques in a way that is like actually regimented. They're, they're taking the haphazard approach that, that many of us have, which is, you know, we wrote a bunch of cool blog posts and, and internalized some of it and turning that into how do I make my life awesome? How do I, how do I mm-hmm. win at the things I'm trying to do? How do I find the things that are really important and integrate them in a more systematic way? Yeah, exactly. As far as I know, there's no module yet on trauma or um, that sort of thing, but it's the kind of thing I could totally imagine being a course in the future. You know, how do I overcome uh, painful things that happen to me or something? Of note, there is a course in the Guild of the Rose on how to make Guild of the Road co- Rose courses. So if you have an idea of how to how to present uh, people with a way to get over their chronic pain using this method, you can first take their course on how to make Guild of the Road courses and then literally make a course presenting exactly that to your fellow, fellow guildmates, which they probably would really appreciate. That's a genius level move, guys. I'm talking to the, to the folks at the Guild of the Rose. Hey, here, here, we, we have a, you know, we can't teach everything. We don't know everything. But if you want to learn how to teach stuff a little better, we do know how to teach that. Uh, yeah. That is that is the kind of meta technique, awesome bullshit, like, like life hack bullshit. Except when I say bullshit, I just mean, <laughs> I mean cheating. And I mean <laughs> cheating in the way that losers would call it cheating. We call it awesome technique. That, that is the kind of cool stuff you'd get at the Guild of the Rose. So check them out. Guildoftherose.org and also link in our show notes. That's right. Um, well, somebody does pay us, hopefully not for good. Steven, welcome back. We are doing wrong episodes a day later, and I'm dropping it right in the middle somewhere, although probably not in the mid-sentence of anything. Sounds fun. This will fit seamlessly. But hey, you know, you're the editor, so. Well, everyone should know this, unless otherwise, unless there's extenuating circumstances, Enyash edits all of these these days, so. The rest of us have day jobs. But, right, uh, exactly. I gotta do something to be worth keeping around. I think somehow you're busier than I am anyway, so. I I don't know. I do... A lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I do a lot of stuff, but like a lot of that is just, I, since we were talking about the chronic pain earlier, I, I do um, between 40 and 60 minutes of physical therapy every day, which just takes a lot of time, you know? Yeah, I, I do my physical therapy in waves, like if it's been a bad few weeks or whatever, but mm-hmm. part of me feels like when I do that, I'm leaning into the fact that I'm actually fixing an actual problem rather than just fighting it with my brain. So I don't know. It's a dance. It's not a full recipe, you know? Yeah. Taking an hour out of your day, it's actually a significant chunk of the day. It adds up. Yeah. And, you know, at the worst, all you're doing is making your back stronger, which is, you know, great. So, Right. Means that I can lift ladies and carry them upstairs. That's always important. Hell yes, it is. All right. But what's more important is finding out 37 ways that words can be wrong. And what's more important than that is realizing that 37 is a big number. Yes. And these are already summarized. So we just decided to pick our favorite three. Yeah. And uh, everyone should skin this list. This is like the the final wrap up on humans guides to words like, hey, here's everything I covered. We're not, we're not going to recover everything he covered. 
No. And each one of these, I believe all 37 of them have a link back to one of the posts where he originally talks about it in depth. Yes. The first one I picked was, you talk about categories as if they were mana fallen from the platonic realm rather than inferences implemented in a real brain. The ancient philosopher said Socrates is a man, not my brain perceptually classifies Socrates as a match against the human concept. (laughs) Which that last sentence is just the most rat sentence I've ever heard, man. (laughs) So stereotypically us. Yeah, it'd be uh, interesting, is the best way to put it, to to have a conversation with somebody that had sentences like that in it. but Right, if they talked like that all the time. Yeah. I've talked with him a few times, and they're not all like that. Sometimes these sentences do crop up just in natural conversation with him, but it's certainly not, you know, a a chock-full kind of situation. They feel organic when he does it somehow. Yeah. Yeah. I guess because it's just, it's him. That's how his brain works. Exactly. Um, yeah. But yeah, I really like this one because the keeping in mind that concepts are a thing that our brains are using to keep track of the map that we have of the territory rather than real things that exist outside of us is pretty important. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm going to divide out of order because uh, the second one matches more with your first. Your verbal definition doesn't capture more than a tiny fraction of a category's shared characteristics, but you try to reason as if it does. Mm. I think that that's the uh, italicized sentence in here, and I think it's the great... It's a great summary, but he talks about when yeah. when Flit, when philosophers of Plato's Academy claimed that the best definition of human was featherless biped. Diogenes, the cynic, is said to have exhibited a plucked chicken and declared, here is Plato's man. The Platonists simply changed or promptly changed the definition to a featherless biped with broad nails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point because people do do that all the time. It, the idea that we can't capture everything in our in our words or our definitions even. But we do reason as if they, as if we have. This is something to keep in mind. And when yeah. we're walking into a failure of reasoning, it's all too easy to do so when you're misstepping with your language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My second one is kind of the inverse of this one. It's you draw your boundary around a volume of space where there is no greater than usual density, meaning that the associated word does not correspond to any performable Bayesian inferences. Um drawing drawing a shape around something where there's no real cluster there to keep keep hold of to talk about reasonably and saying that it's a word now um <laughs> my favorite example of this is demisexual are you familiar with the word demisexual i've heard of it it's the idea that I, if I'm a demisexual i'm a person who's only attracted to other people after i've gotten to know them a bit and <laughs> i kind of hate this word because i'm like that's just all humans basically like kind of on a spectrum obviously we're we're a lot more attracted to people that we have met more and have more in common and connect more with and sure there's always exceptions there's always like the one drop dead gorgeous hot person that you'd be like okay you said two sentences to me and i will go to bed with you because oh my god but um for the most part demisexual is just another way of saying regular human and i it annoys me that there's a special word for it now Maybe some people just don't have the intuition or the reaction that Ryan Gosling's attractive. <laughs> well, I personally, I don't know, man. The, obviously, tastes vary, but the idea that like we need a special word for for people who are more attracted to people as they get to know them is not a thing that we actually need a special word for. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like the human condition. Uh, yeah, you know it. It could be that I'd like, I, I think Ryan Gosling's more or less attractive the more I got to know him, but right. uh, 
you know, if you get to know him and it turns out he's a real asshole, you're like, oh, maybe I wouldn't sleep with him after all. But if you get to know him and it turns out he's just the sweetest, kindest person in the world, you're like, Jesus, I really want your dick now. Right. I mean, just the priors on him being attractive are, you know, I, I don't, I've never met the guy, but it's just there. So, yeah. All right. My, my next pick was uh, the act of labeling something with a word disguises a challengeable inductive inference that you're making. If the last 11 egg shaped objects you've drawn have been blue and the last eight cube cubes drawn have been red it's a matter of induction saying that this rule will hold true in the future but if you call the blue eggs blags and the red cubes rubes you may reach into the barrel feel an egg and think oh a bleg um this was words as hidden inferences blegs and rubes came up a lot and i like that because you know picking a real example always draws contention so making something up that's uh abstract and has a couple of simple rules is mm-hmm. is nice easy way to illustrate the point but mm-hmm. uh it's this is we we you know we covered all the reasons I think we liked these posts when we talk about the long form of them, but just yeah. again the the act of labeling something with a word disguises a challengeable inductive inference. Um, yeah, and th- this is again something that we do all the time. If we say something is uh, I, that actually comes up again with the you know attractiveness, you know the the inference mm. there is like I find them sexually desirable or something, right? Yeah, uh, typically unless someone's using it to mean you know they're have symmetrical features and they're they're well built or something right yeah some people describe cars some people can describe cars as sexy right right yeah and like yeah when you said ryan gosling was attractive i didn't challenge that at all but there is a challengeable um inference in there like how many people are uh are how likely to want to go to bed with him or to do him favors or whatever or even does attractiveness mean i want to go to bed with them it could just mean that i think they're hot you know that's true. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I, I, I might just think like like this person would be highly valued by uh, members of the opposite sex. Yeah. Well, that that was that was a darn good example. Then I like that Ryan Gosling keeps coming up. It's uh, it just seems appropriate. Hopefully, if I was in a room with Ryan Gosling, he would keep coming up as well. But <laughs> nice pun. <laughs> oh no! no! We, we oh, that was what? That was, that was sexual innuendo. That doesn't count as a pun. <laughs> It's only not a pun if it's not sexual. All right. You, you, you I will keep change. Drawing, drawing these these false boundaries around stuff to keep your, your definitions careful. There's no way you, I could ever define something that is funny as a pun because we just know that by definition, puns aren't funny. Obviously. Yes. All right. Well, let's take that to my final one here. Uh, you think that definitions can't be wrong or that I can define a word any way I like. Uh, we talked about that one a bit before about how uh, words actually have real implications and should point to clusters in thing space. And therefore, just saying I can define a word any way I want does not work at all in the real world. Um, I, I really like that point, and I, I I need to keep remembering it because it is a common thing to argue and even to believe, honestly, that we can define a word any way I want. And I want to mentioned this specifically because Wes in the Discord just yesterday had a bone to pick with me because he said I was um, fucking around with defining the word spirituality because I've been over the past two years on a bit of a spirituality kick and trying to figure out why it's important to me and what the heck it even is. And I've come to the conclusion that spirituality is a, a sense and more than just a sense, like an actual, in fact, being connected to something or things that are greater than like an individual often in terms of organizations but it can be like structures it can be anything that is like larger both 
in space and in time than a human is and makes you kind of feel awe and like you want to be a part of it is what I would consider to be spirituality. And Wes was like, dude, it has the word spirit in the name. If it doesn't have a spirit and some kind of supernatural in there, it's not spirituality. And I was like, dude, nobody even knows what a spirit is. Nobody's out there got any kind of decent definition of it. And um, I don't know. I think that my definition of spirituality actually correctly captures the vibes of how people of how people feel when they use the word. But maybe I'm interacting with a strange subsection of humanity. And maybe most people do use it to mean a thing that must include a supernatural spirit. I, I don't know how I feel at this point about um, using a word. Like, I think it definitely has a certain vibe. And I think I'm capturing that vibe. But people could argue with me. I think that all of us, you and me and, and everyone listening and everybody on earth interacts with a weird subset of humanity, unless you happen to know thousands of people. Okay, that's fair. Because the thing you're talking about, you know, you, you can get that sense by planting a tree whose shade you'll never enjoy, right? Uh, exactly. But, you know, a lot of people will talk about it in the sense of, you know, I, I feel a presence when I'm in a church or something, you know, mm-hmm. and they don't mean, you know, the presence of the people who built it or the 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 weight of history behind it they mean that they they feel uh i was going to use the word spiritual that you know they feel a a connection to a a otherworldly entity right i think what they are feeling is that history and that building and the people that made it and that's hard to place into words and it's very easy to default to thinking that this feeling must be related to a actual entity a person type entity and so it gets transferred to that but that's a mistake people made uh, that that could be, you know, certainly in some <laughs> cases, but, you know, and I think in others, you know, somebody might just refer to the act of prayer as spiritual. And yeah, that builds, you, could, you can stretch your definition to be like, well, that's the edifice of, you know, the culture of religion built around it and stuff. But a lot, a lot of people do have a splash of magic in that word that yeah. uh, is actual magic and not the kind of magic we're talking about. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, this is one of those things where, you know, words are slippery. And so, you know, you can define a word any way you like just lean on that for a second like it's we need to we need to be able to talk about what we need we need to be able to know what we're talking about right Mm -hmm. and so in the context you know if we're talking if we're having a discussion about free will you know we'll need to lay out what it is we're actually talking about we can define words we can make up new words um again the what does sound mean right and to make things even more slippery like word definitions do drift over time and after 100 200 years they might mean something fairly different from what they meant you know a few centuries ago yeah i mean or even 15 minutes ago if the conversation is is uh not kept on track right well sure but i meant like just in terms of common usage yeah yeah i agree i mean that that's, that's going to be a problem no matter what but i'm just thinking like it's it's important to have definitions for the words that you're talking about during during a conversation mm-hmm. but you can't just like, I, I mean, so it's, it's, you know, trying to like the religion example, if, if somebody's saying, well, you know, I just, I think God is the, that sense of awe you get when you look at something with history. Well, then they're not using that word the way everyone else is using it. Right. Yeah. And, uh, it, they can kind of mott and Bailey if they're trying to do that too. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Third one I grabbed here was, uh, you try to treat category membership as all or nothing, ignoring the existence of more and less typical subclusters. Mm, yeah. I, I mean, and his example was, you know, a favorite of mine too. Ducks and penguins are less typical birds than robins and pigeons. Uh, right. Interestingly, a between groups experiment showed that subjects thought a disease was more likely to spread from robins to ducks on an island than from ducks to robins, uh, which is, I remember that from that, from that post that was typicality and asymmet- asymmetrical similarity. 
Um, so read the rest of these. We only covered, uh, there's, there's 31 more to go. So, uh, they're fun. This is a great way to, uh, segue into it. So, uh, yeah, actually it's a great way to segue into what starts off the next sequence. Uh, when I was reading the dissolving the question post, our next, our next post here, uh, I was thinking, oh man, this is like the perfect, you know, kind of capstone post for the, um, for the human's guide to language, uh, sequence, you know, the last one was a summary and this is like, kind of like the bringing it all home. And Mm -hmm. then I realized at the top, it says reductionism one-on-one. And I was, Mm. and first of all, I've had the thought of this is the capstone post like three, four times going through the sequence because a lot of them feel that way. Um, Yeah. But then I realized, oh, this is actually a whole different sequence. And the reason that, you know, this feels like the, the language one is because he had to build all of the, the edifice of like, here's, here's how language is going to be used here. Um, to even have this conversation about reductionism. Yeah. You know, it, he was it, playing a very long game. Yeah. The, I mean, the whole sequence, the whole uh, enterprise of writing the sequences was a long game and I love it so much. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, the idea of trying to, to dive into a, a, a conversation about reductionism while we're still hung up on, you know, well, what does free will, you know, actually mean? The idea that it could, quote, actually mean anything uh, is... The, the problem we have to get over to even start having this conversation, right? I love that near the very beginning, he was like, let me tell you about inferential distances and what you have to do to cross them. And then he's been spending this entire time building up the bridge to cross the inferential distance here. Yeah. And I I, I love at the post at the end of that, I the, the one that talks about inferential distances, he says, now try and explain, the, explain this concept in two or three sentences. Yes. And I still do try to do that because, you know, I it's a concept that, I don't know if I would have grasped it, you know, in two or three sentences on my first hearing of it. But like, if I want to explain what it is, like the, the general concept of, you know, this person knows a lot about something. And when they're explaining it to somebody, they assume a baseline of knowledge that just isn't there. Uh, that, 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 that hints that, that, that's sort of the thing, you know, mm-hmm. um, it, it captures part of it, but uh, yeah, it, it's hard to uh, summarize this stuff. That's why the, there's uh, hundreds of blog posts rather than 12, you know? Yeah. Uh, Well, he starts off this next, our second post, dissolving the question by saying that if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? And pointing out that when he tackled this question, he didn't answer it. (laughs) He didn't pick a position of yes or no. He went and deconstructed the human algorithm for processing words, even going so far as to sketch an illustration of a neural network. At the end, I hope there was no question left, not even the feeling of a question. And I'm not sure if the tree falling in the forest necessarily counts as this because I'm by when I first read this, I had already dismissed the question as dumb, but um, I, it was a very good small toy example to start with. And I think he's right that he didn't actually answer it. He just pointed out like all the ways that this isn't even really a question if you dig down into it. Right. And, and by making explicit by saying he's like, look, I didn't answer the question. I dissolved it. Um, yeah. And at the end of it, this is the important part that you're not even left feeling like there should be a question left to answer. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, this comes up, this came up sometimes in the few, in the previous sequence about, you know, but is it really a bleg or not? Uh, mm. You shouldn't, if, you, if you're attacking this correctly, you shouldn't be left with any lingering hang up there. Right. Right. You just understand answered. like this, this is a blue cube, right? Yeah. It, and so it, it's neither. Yeah. You, you've all you've answered all the individual parts, and you realize that left in the center is this thing that your brain was using the neural network to try to classify things in order to make induction quicker and easier. But it doesn't actually point to anything in real life, and so you don't need to answer it. 
Yeah, no, perfect. Exactly. Yeah. So he takes this a uh, step further and um, maybe more than one step takes this a million steps further and goes from a tree falling to free will <laughs> and uh, goes on to say that like when you're trying to answer this, you can prove that free will is impossible until the sun goes cold, but this leaves an unexplained fact of cognitive science. If free will doesn't exist, what goes on inside the head of a human being who thinks it does? And uh, he points out that this is not a rhetorical question. He actually thinks it's important to figure out what's going on inside the brain of someone who thinks it does. Yeah. And this is because proving that you are confused doesn't make you any less confused. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, proving that a question is meaningless may or may, or may not help you more than answering it. It's, it's funny in just like a couple weeks ago on Slack, or I guess on Teams, because my company is not cool in that one specific regard. Someone like mentioned determinism and was like, oh, yeah, this is interesting. And I was like, oh, yeah, from that was that was me 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's not like did, you know, I'm not sh throwing shade at them. It's just this is something I've, I thought about a long time ago. But in a conversation just a couple of days ago with somebody um, there, they'd come across, you know, their first kind of like free will isn't a thing argument. And uh, my reply was that it wouldn't be even clear to me what it would mean if it was true in the sense that people conceptualize it to be. Mm -hmm. um, but I realized at the time and, you know, reemphasizing it now that, that that wouldn't make the person I was talking with any less confused. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, this question is a confusion, but that doesn't make them feel less confused about the question. Interesting thing is I have also been talking with a friend recently about the free will thing. <laughs> and we, we've boiled down that we agree on absolutely every single matter of substance, but we disagree on the vibes. <laughs> and really when you agree on everything, else that all that's really left is the vibes part right pretty much yeah there was a really fun uh and it was like recorded in a bar conversation with uh sam harris and daniel dennett uh dennett is a famous compatibilist uh professional philosopher and sam harris is, you know wrote a book on free will that he says like you know he took the hard uh determinist stance the thing is all of those labels you can just toss out because they agreed on everything yeah they, they tried to they tried to think of examples of uh, if I'm remembering correctly of like, would this count as free will? You know, if, if you wound back the clock would have gone differently. No. Well, then what does that mean? There's distinctions between like being coerced or having few choices, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. versus like being able to summon a thought from the ether on purpose and act on that. Right. Anyway. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I agree that this is definitely a few steps above, um, you know, tree falling, uh, yeah. sounds right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The next thing I pulled out is that he says, once you understand in detail how your brain generates the feeling of the question, once you realize that your feeling is an unanswered question corresponding to an illusory central unit wanting to know whether it should fire, even after all the edge units are clamped at known values, then you're done, which I guess we're kind of at, although I still, I still have a little lingering thing which is important because the next point he says is that if there's any <laughs> lingering feeling of a remaining unanswered question or of having been fast talking to something, then this is a sign that you have not dissolved the question. A vague dissatisfaction should be as much a warning as a shout. Really dissolving the question doesn't leave anything behind. And I, that feels true because I don't feel any sort of lingering anything about whether a tree falling makes a sound. It's just a non-question to me. Whereas I still sometimes argue free will with people, even though we agree on every single detail. It's interesting. It took me years to kind of have all of the lingering feeling of unanswered question. It took it took years for that to finish dissolving, actually. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I read the books. I, I bought the arguments and 
it all made sense, but I still had like this, well, if, I still feel like I'm choosing stuff and like that, but that's not actually the question. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do feel like I'm pretty settled on this. And so I don't, I don't really have arguments with people, but I do have conversations with people who like talking about it. Uh, but I, I'm not, I'm on this question. I I'm past feeling confused. Luckily, I, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm confused on basically everything, but this, this one I'm feeling pretty good about consciousness came up, comes up quite a bit, uh, has come up in, quite a bit in our last couple of, uh, in-person meetups. And there's yeah. definitely some confusion there. We still are still working that out. Is consciousness meaningfully different from free will? Yes, I would think so. I guess you can't have free will unless you have consciousness. That sounds more true. Okay. Um, again, uh, putting a big flag next to the words free will. But uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, you're certainly not making choices if you're a rock. Uh, the next thing on the, the bullet points here was that it seems... It seems to me that at least 20% of the real world effectiveness of a skilled rationalist comes from not stopping too early. This links back to a post, uh, the meditation on curiosity. If you keep asking questions, you'll get to your destination eventually. If you decide too early that you found an answer, you won't. I love that. Um, yeah. You know, so- sometimes you run out of time. Sometimes you realize it's not worth the effort or whatever, but mm-hmm. it's careful to keep in mind that, hey, I'm stopping here, not because I have an answer, but because I'm just done uh, versus, well, I've solved it. Yeah. And that goes back to the vague dissatisfaction from before, that if there's any lingering feeling, eh, don't stop just yet. Right. And that, that links to your strength, of the, your strength as a rationalist. <laughs> yes. There we go. Uh, the very next thing, I think it was the next thing he said after that, maybe a sentence or two later, was uh, he says, the challenge above all is to notice when you are confused, even if it just feels like a tiny little bit of confusion. I wanted to just pull that out and highlight it again, because I notice I am confused is a thing that sort of lost its original meaning, I feel, in rationalist culture. Hmm. And people sometimes say it just to be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Explain more of that. Or, you know, it, it stopped having this more specific meaning of you think you've answered something and there's still a little niggling, you know, whatever, but you're just going to ignore it because you're pretty sure you've answered the thing and you want to keep moving on. And the challenge is to like, no, notice, hold on a second. There is a little thing there that's still... Uh, that's still unexplained and you still got that little bit of confusion and if you just pass it oh pass over it someday in the future it might come around and bite you bite you in the ass notice that confusion and and jump on it and work on that is what this was originally i believe supposed to mean and uh nowadays people just say i notice i'm confused sometimes even just as a dunk on someone you know after they make an argument oh that's unfortunate i mean because i I still try my best to stick with the original intention of it. And I, cause it, it, it's one of the hardest, I don't know if anyone does this successfully all the time or not. If so, they're, you know, some black belt rationalist, but I, I tried to do this with varying de- degrees of success all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, it's actually really hard. You know, it, in retrospect, I'll, I'll be like, Oh, I noticed I was confused about that at the time. I should have noticed or should have raised that to conscious attention. Um, yeah. Cause then it's I, always I so embarrassing when, well, depends on the, how, how embarrassing, but, uh, yeah. I, I try not to feel too bad of it. Like a recent example is at my grandma's house this weekend and we're looking for her phone. So I called it and then I found it. And then I noticed my number came up as a number, not as a name. Hmm. And I was like, well, hold on a minute. Let me see. And then I go into the, co- and so like, I could have just been like, oh, here's your phone. And just kind of like, you know, let that little niggling dissatisfaction, you know, that confusion kind of just dissolve, evaporate. But yeah. I was like, hold on, let's look at this. And she's, you know, 88 she, or 87 and uh, isn't very tech savvy. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going through the contacts and two of the numbers in my phone number are transposed. Mm. And so I was like, oh, this is why, you know, when you mentioned some time ago that you tried to call me that it didn't go through. 
It's because you yeah. called some random phone number and left them a voice message. Um, yeah. <laughs> so again, it's, it's a baby example, but it's it's a uh, it's helpful in that now, like my grandma can call me if she needs to, right? And she'll yeah, answer the phone a, if I call her. Um, right. It, it's a very solid example and has good emotional resonance. So hope, hopefully, easier to remember too. Yeah. I guess I'm just trying to think. I, I I wish I could think of like a a more fun, like higher stakes one, but this one was just uh, yesterday, the day before. So it's yeah salient in uh, uh, availability anyway. Well, this post ends on one of Eliezer's biggest mistakes. He says, homework problem. What kind of cognitive algorithm, as felt from the inside, would generate the observed debate about free will? Don't explain why people believe in free will. Explain how. And the reason we have not yet solved AI alignment is because every rationalist except Eliezer is still stuck trying to do this homework problem. So (laughs) he sabotaged his own movement. Why do you say that? Because we're still debating about free will. Well, like philosophers are, but, you know, are the rest of us? I literally was just a few days ago with someone, so... With another rationalist? Uh, yes. Oh, well, then... I I would say yes, despite the fact that she would say no. She's rat adjacent. I mean, you know, and that's close enough for my my count. I guess it's, uh... uh, Let me go about it this way. Did you guys try to talk about why you feel like you have free will? Or do you guys try and like define free will in a way that you both agreed on? Because that homework problem is is easier. I, I remember when I first read this, I was like, oh man, this is like, you know, because this was, you know, in my earlier philosophy days. And uh, I, I thought this was profound and challenging. And, and it's still, it still is both, but it's uh, it's not nearly as like high a mountain as, as it used to be for me to try and get to the bottom of this. Like the, I, I you know, without putting any um, formalization on it, like the algorithm is basically like people see chocolate vanilla ice cream in front of them they feel a deliberation and they pick one and they mm-hmm. and they they have a, a sense that i chose this one because i wanted to i could have chosen the other one if i wanted that one right right that that's roughly the the set of steps that that leads to the the reason why someone would say well i i have free will that's why i chose that one um mm-hmm. but it's and I, I don't think that actually that that would maybe get me a d on this homework assignment just because that was my quick and dirty answer but um I, that's at least a C answer, man. Well, because I think that's basically the correct answer. Yeah, but I, I would need more formalization, and and I think not not like you know necessarily mathy stuff, but just a bit more clarity. But um, it, but you would say that that is not actually free will. I, I wouldn't. I, again, I'm not sure what free will. I, I mean, we can we can slap a definition on it really quick mm-hmm. if you want, just for fun. But um, the definition people usually mean. Is like yeah. My definition would be exactly what you just said: that there is a deliberative process inside your mind, and that deliberative process is what determined uh, whether you pick the chocolate or vanilla. See, I think that's different than how most people use it. They say that that deliberate that 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 deliberative process was conscious and intentional, and they could have chosen the other one if they felt like it. If I ask you right now to name a city, uh, I'm asking you to name a city. London. Why did you pick London? I'd recently seen the word London, so it was still high in my availability, probably. I mean, it, was that a, a free choice that you made, though? Like, because you're, you're, you probably saw New York at some point in the recent past or San Francisco. It was the deliberative process within my mind that uh, came up with that word. So, yes. I mean, like, were you free to have chosen San Francisco? Sure. I mean, were you free to have chosen? I didn't, but 
Like when you say the, if I had wanted to choose vanilla, I would have chosen vanilla. I think that is just another way of saying this deliberative process could have theoretically output vanilla if some of the initial parameters had been different, which is just trivially true. Exactly. That's, that's why I, I pivoted to the to the city thing, because I, I realized when I'd said, if I wanted, the thing is, you know, the whole contention is that you don't choose your wants, right? Um, mm-hmm. Or you don't choose your preferences in that, in that moment. Normally, I like chocolate ice cream, but I had chocolate something for lunch. So I'm not having chocolate for dessert, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah, but that doesn't that doesn't change which deliberative process is the one that created the output. No, but it just changes the output. And then so, like when people say, sure. "Well, I could I could have chosen the other one," and it's yeah, if the universe was different, you, it would have been different. But it wasn't, so it's not right. Right? Yeah. But, that, yes. Uh, so I, I think we that, are once again violently agreeing. There we go. All right, we did yeah. it. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, the last sentence here was the one that made me feel like I was not equipped to to climb this mountain of, of rationality. Uh, this is one of the first real challenges I tried as an aspiring rationalist once upon a time. One of the easier conundrums, relatively speaking. May it serve you <laughs> likewise. And the fact that it took me the better part of a decade to totally like to feel like I have the confusion dissolved there makes me feel like I suck at this. Cause I, you know, but you know, it, it's different, different speeds for different folks. And, and uh, I'm not going to give myself a hard time, but it's just kind of funny that, it's like, oh yeah, this was a baby problem I worked out, you know, when I was a wild and reckless youth. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, this thing that philosophers are still arguing about and have been for four thousand years. The, the the key is not to like again solve the problem of free will. The, the 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 key is to explain why people feel like they have it and what's actually going on there to a, to a level that satisfies everybody, right? Yeah. Uh, so. I think going back to the the tree, you know, making noise in the forest, the, the answer isn't to say it makes a sound or not. The, the answer is to explain why people disagree. And then once you do, because that one's trivial, you can do it in two sentences. Then they're like, oh, yeah, there is no argument there. Mm-hmm. And so you, you can do that with with the free will thing. I think actually fairly quickly, I think for me, the reason it took longer is because I wasn't deliberately solving the homework problem. Yeah, I just kept reading the sequences. Well, no, I mean, it, it, well, that same here, but I mean, like, you know, you mentioned your conversation earlier this week with somebody, you know, you weren't talking about, you know, the cognitive algorithm that generates the feeling of the observed debate of free will, right? Yeah, yeah. You were talking about what does free will mean? Do we, you know, do we make choices or whatever, right? Right. So it part of it, part of it, I think why it took me longer is I didn't keep my eye on the actual ball. We'll have to keep our eye on stuff going forward because uh, we've got two more less wrong posts next time. We do. Those less wrong posts are wrong questions and writing a wrong question. How appropriate. I'm glad we get them both at the same time. All right, uh, Stephen, thank you for joining me. And uh, let's get back to the rest of the show. Segways. Vinyash, you get to give a shout out to one of our uh, favorite patrons in the whole world. Oh, fuck yes. Uh, this week, we are thanking patron Casey Kickendall. Kikendall? Probably Kikendall. Who's been a supporter for six freaking years. That is amazing. That That is a long time. That is, I don't even remember what we were talking about six years ago. So that, that's, that's probably when we started the Patreon. Oh shit, it might be. Because yeah, we didn't have it from the beginning. I know. So you are a hero. If there's anything that we haven't done that you want us to do, we're all over it. So give us a shout. Absolutely. Thank you for that. It it really helps us. You can reach out to us. Uh, there's an email account that we occasionally receive emails at. It's uh, BayesianConspiracyPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, mm-hmm. There's the subreddit that I don't check anymore because I'm not on Reddit. So don't do it there. Come to the Discord. There's a link in the show notes. 
you can at us there. And uh, there's also the, you know, the patrons only lounge where there's the cool kids hang out. So there, there actually isn't a patrons only lounge, but I will make one very soon. Somebody just recently poked me about it being like, Hey, where's the patrons only lounge. I'm like, shit. Did Steven say that we had one again? <laughs> so did, did I ever say we had one before now? Oh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was me that said that we had one in the past. It might have. It sounds like something I would have said, but uh, okay. I'm going to blame you. Um, I, I will. Yeah, it's my fault. Great, it's thanks. my fault for not making it yet. Like Discord's been around for at least three years now. Frankly, I didn't know that the integration was there for it to know. I think you have to tie your Patreon account to your uh, Discord account, but I think people do that anyway. So yeah. Anyway, great. Yeah. Thank, thank you for your patronage. Uh, you got anyone can be just as cool as Casey. Well, I mean. You'd have to spend six years at it to be as cool as Casey, but you can still support us and we will always appreciate you no matter what. Uh, if you click in the show notes and go to our Patreon. That's right. Special shout out to Casey and everybody else for listening. This was fun. Um, Hell yeah. I hope this conversation was fun for other people to listen to as well. Steven, I will see you in two weeks, at which point we will actually be talking with somebody about one way to make kids more resilient, uh, which will hopefully lead to them being less traumatized and having better lives. Sounds like fun. And we'll be doing it in like real life. Yes, we will. This will be one of our rare episodes where everybody's in the same room and talking at each other and looking at each other. All right. None of this annoying lag and talking over stuff. Looking forward to it. Awesome. All right. See you soon. See ya. I've been so miserable, my dear. I feel almost as bad as I did when you were still here.